0: Hello and welcome to the latest Moneymakers Investment Trust podcast. I'm Jonathan Davis, the editor of the Investment Trust Hub, and with me today, as so often and every week, is Simon Elliott, the head of Investment Trust Research at Winterflood Securities. Well, I don't know about you, Simon, but I've been uh, sitting in the sun quite a lot this week. There's been quite a nice improvement in the weather, been possible to go outside without a coat on. Uh, is that uh, mood been reflected in the markets this
1: week? Well, uh, it'd be nice to think so. But actually, uh, the markets ended down in, in negative territory. Well, certainly, the UK market uh, finished about 1% or so down. Uh, investment companies did a little bit better, to be fair, uh, though slightly in negative territory for the week. And actually, it's interesting. We have seen the sector average discount narrow through the course of this week. Um, it's broadly settling in a range between 2 and 3%. Um, probably nearer to the tighter end at the end of the week. But as always, uh, a very interesting week in the markets. It's a strange one, really. I mean, clearly, we're seeing some positive economic data come through, some signs of corporate earnings picking up. And yet, at the same time, we're still faced with this uh, ongoing pandemic and obviously some terrible news out from India this week that just underlines we're certainly not out of the woods yet yet. Uh, In addition to that, I think um, there's been a lot of uh, speculation about the White House's capital gains tax proposals. I know uh, one U.S. colleague of mine seems to have worked himself up into a sweat about it. But more broadly speaking, it's it's really this question, is the global economy going to see uh, expansion? And this week we learned that the U.K. economy is going to uh, see the strongest GDP growth since 1988. So going back to the 80s.
0: Well, that's a bit of a mixed blessing, but it's certainly impressive. The retail sales figures are very good this week in the UK. But as you say, other concerns. I saw that the number of uh, deaths from COVID has hit 3 million. So it's a mixed picture, as so often. Let's start by talking about corporate activity. There's a little bit of an update first, I think, on what's happening with city merchants' high yield and Invesco-enhanced income, two trusts that obviously aim to offer investors a... Better than average income. What's the news there?
1: Yes, and it's worth noting that both of those investment trusts sit in the Invesco stable. So we originally learnt about merger proposals for these two investment trusts back in March, and this is now moving on a pace. So we saw circulars published this week. There'll be general meetings for those respective funds on the 19th of May, uh, and if shareholder approval is forthcoming. They will be merged shortly thereafter. But we've got a few more details as well. So we knew that the merged vehicle would be called the Invesco Bond Income Plus Investment Trust. rhys Davis, who's the manager of both funds, will continue as the portfolio manager. The ongoing merged fund will look to pay 11p Per annum dividend for at least three years. And that's expected to be substantially covered by net portfolio income. And they can use revenue and capital reserves if necessary. And in terms of the gearing level, and this is not unimportant because Invesco enhanced income is a certainly more geared play on this end of the market. The guidance they've given on that is that uh, we're going to have uh, gearing levels of about 10% or so. So uh, this merger is progressing. We'll see that shareholder vote uh, in about a month or so's time. Uh, and thereafter, one would assume that those two funds will become one.
0: Is there any uh, option involved in this particular proposal for shareholders who don't like the idea to to opt out? Is there going to be some kind of tender or something, or is that not part of the proposal?
1: No, that's not part of this particular set of proposals. I mean, it, it's worth noting, as mentioned, that in both instances the manager is the same, the asset class remains the same, uh, and they are, you know, in both Invesco vehicles. So, uh, I mean, there's a bit more to this than, than just housekeeping. But essentially, there's no change in the investment objective here. And it's where we have seen liquidity events or some kind of tender mechanism put on the table. It's where there's been a change of investment strategy or a change of investment house. So that's not the case in this instance. uh, And therefore, it's basically it'll be an NAV for NAV uh, merger basis.
0: Yes, well, that makes sense. I just wanted to clarify that and confirm that. OK, there's also some news out from Invesco Income Growth. A little bit of an update there. This is obviously a similar sort of uh, trust, but not quite the same. Also at Invesco, Invesco Income Growth. What's happened there?
1: Well, that's right. So Invesco Income Growth, we learned back in December last year, actually, that it was looking to merge into the UK leg of Invesco Perpetual Select, which has a number of different share classes, uh, different portfolios doing different things, and one of which looks at UK equities. Uh, So this week we found out the result of how many people wanted to roll over and those that elected for a cash option. So despite saying that uh, there has to be a change of management or a change of manager, in this case, there was a cash option on the table, and that was a 30% cash exit. Uh, and that was oversubscribed. So uh, 47% of the shares in issue elected for that cash option. Uh, so that equates to about £51 million. But essentially, £123 million will be rolled over into that UK share class. And that's quite significant because that takes that share class up to about 165. So you can see that's a large bulk of its assets are coming from Invesco Income Growth. So James Goldstone and Kieran Mallon will be responsible for that share class going forward. And obviously the idea is that that becomes the ongoing vehicle and provides a greater degree of liquidity. It's interesting, three of the directors of Invesco Income Growth are moving over to Invesco Perpetual Select, and that includes Mark Dampier, the former head of research at Hargreaves Lansdowne, who's quite a well-known figure across the investment management industry.
0: So how do you think that uh, result will be interpreted? I mean, obviously it was oversubscribed, the cash option. Would that be regarded as not a total vote of confidence in the, in the way forward?
1: Yeah, no, it's a good question. I mean, it's, it's worth noting as well the difference between the two mergers in the Invesco stable. Invesco income growth has been struggling for some time, uh, and that's in common with a number of the investment trusts that Invesco uh, were responsible for on the on the UK desk certainly and we've talked in podcasts gone by of Edinburgh Investment Trust and Perpetual Income and Growth which are no longer part of the Invesco stable uh, Invesco Income Growth similarly had issues over performance so you could look at this and say well is there an overhang here the fact that 30% of shares have managed to get their cash back but equally there's still uh, a relatively substantial element locked into the ongoing vehicle. It remains to be seen clearly, but it is worth noting that Invesco Perpetual Select uh, has historically pursued a zero discount policy. Now, that seems to have relaxed uh, for the UK leg as this merger process has kind of rolled on over the last few months. So it'd be interesting to see how aggressive they use the buyback policy to narrow that discount. Interesting enough, they have renewed uh, the buyback authority, because obviously there are now going to be far more numbers of shares and issues. So that is one to watch. And that may be a way for some disgruntled or less happy shareholders to exit. Uh, or equally, some people may see it as, as an opportunity for the discount to
0: narrow. Yes. And what has, what has been the experience so far since that was announced? What's happened to the share price? Has it moved at all? Has it gone up, gone down? What's happened? Well, to
1: be fair, the new shares will only start trading from Monday, the 26th of April. So we haven't actually seen those shares flipped across yet. So Invesco income growth is no more. That finished trading towards the end of the week. But in terms of the new shares, we haven't seen that. So if you look at the discount on Invesco Perpetual Select, the UK leg at the end of Thursday, for instance, that was about 6 or 7%
0: discount. So wider than it has been historically. Right. That's what I was uh, trying to get at. Yeah. Okay, well, that'll be interesting to see how that one pans out. These uh, merger proposals, obviously, they sound quite complicated in many cases, but we'll see how that plays out over time. It takes a bit of explaining, but I dare say the shareholders will decide to themselves what they want to do from here. Let's move on to fundraising. Uh, There's been more fundraising, uh, needless to say. Uh, The markets have still remained pretty strong. Uh, Let's start off with uh, Gore Street Energy Storage Fund, GSF. Uh, which is obviously in a very uh, popular area at the moment. Energy storage seems to be one of the key trends that is attracting support at the moment. How did their uh, issue go? It went well, to be honest. They announced this week that they'd raised £135
1: million gross proceeds uh, and they were new shares issued at 102p. And that represents a 2.4% premium to their latest NAV. And, And just to put that into context, and again, we've talked about this in previous weeks, when this investment company originally came to the market back in May 2018, it raised £31 million through its IPO, so a relatively modest amount. They have been back to the market uh, subsequently, most recently in December last year, when they raised £60 million. But to raise 135 clearly represents a step up again. Uh, and their market cap at the moment, so we haven't seen the new shares issued yet or start to trade yet, their market cap at the moment is just short of £150 million. So you can see that this is a a big move onward and upwards. Those uh, net proceeds will be deployed in a pipeline of 1.3 gigawatts of what they describe as accretive opportunities, which sounds promising, but they're looking at a near-term potential acquisition of an 80 million megawatt project, uh, which is expected to uh, all unfold in the next few weeks. They've also got uh, a couple of opportunities lined up in their existing portfolio, including the Republic of Ireland's assets expansion. So, as always, the, the key with these things is to get that capital deployed in an efficient manner so there is no dilution of existing shareholders.
0: Okay, so let's move on and talk about uh, an even more successful uh, fundraising exercise, at least in terms of gross amounts. Let's talk about the shehalian Fund. MNTN is the ticker, Shehalian run by Bailey Gifford. We talked about that uh, not so long ago, because obviously they've been looking to raise some money and they've had an excellent result, it has to be said.
1: Yeah, no, I'm sure the the people at Bailey Gifford will be delighted. 700 million US dollars raised, and that was uh, significantly oversubscribed placing of C-shares. Those C-shares start trading on the specialist fund segment of the LSE, the London Stock Exchange, on the 26th of April. So that would be Monday. But yeah, just to remind people, this is Bailey Gifford's specialist private company vehicle. It's uh, run by a chap called Peter Singlehurst. It originally came to the market just over two years ago, March 2019. And they raised 477 million US dollars at that stage. But it was a very low key IPO, quite unusual really, yeah, in that it was targeted more institutional clients. And even this time round, they initially looked to raise 500 million US dollars, which was increased to 700 but they made it clear that there was a a minimum subscription size of uh, $5 million. So I think this is seen as a very specialist mandate within the Bailey-Gifford stable. It has been intentionally targeted at more institutional shareholders. But as you say, this is clearly a very good result. And it's the largest fundraising we've seen in the sector since the IPO of Smithson back in October 2018, when when that particular IPO raised over £820 million.
0: Yes, indeed. That's still the record to date, I believe. So, just remind us for those who are, need to follow these things: the C shares will continue to trade separately until what point? When do they then merged into the uh, into the main trust? How does that work? Just remind us how that works.
1: Yeah, no, that's a very important point. So, for any kind of C share issue, it, it's worth noting it's a separate pool of assets. Um, there's a, a separate share price. So, in the case of Shealion, there'll be the ordinary existing ordinary share price, and there'll be the C share as well. They will trade separately. They will be invested separately. What tends to happen with C-shares is that the the investment managers will look to get, uh, if not fully invested, as near to fully invested as makes no difference. And then the two share classes are merged together into the uh, ordinary share class effectively. So the reason why people do that is it avoids the dilution on the ordinary share class. And again, the team behind Chandler made it very clear that they're very careful in how they deploy the capital. I mean, it's taken uh, it didn't take quite two years, but certainly over a year and a half to get pretty much fully invested uh, for the original proceeds of the IPO. So one can only assume that it will you know, take over a few years to to get the C-share up and running.
0: And meanwhile, the share price of the existing share class, uh, how has that been trading? We know it's been very strong and been trading at a premium. How has it been uh, trading recently?
1: Yeah, so um, certainly I've got the close of Thursday right in front of me. And at that stage, it was uh, $1.80, on the ordinary share class, and that represented a 19% premium to the latest NAV. But no, you're right, it has traded well. Um, it came to the market, as I said, only a couple of years ago, and that would have been launched at a dollar at that stage.
0: Okay, so more success for Bailey Gifford. There's a sort of an update from Polar Capital Global Financials, PCFT, Polar Capital Global Financials, which, uh, as its name suggests, uh, invests in companies in the financial uh, sector, that's banks, insurance and uh, fintech the popular fintech sector, Uh, what have they had to say? Yeah, no, it's an interesting story, this one, because it's really a case of a
1: specialist fund that has come back into favour. So just to remind people, there was a liquidity event in May last year and actually 39% of the share capital was tendered at that stage, over £80 million returned to shareholders, but not quite shortly thereafter, but certainly towards the end of the year, that clearly people's demand for financials increased and so to the rating of this particular investment trust. And that's resulted in quite significant level of issuance. So um, I think the stats are that since the end of November last year, the funders reissued 45 million ordinary shares from Treasury. So those shares came in at the time of the tender last year. And that raised additional capital of just short of 70 million for the investment trust. So given that they're kind of running through their Treasury shares, the board is now considering looking maybe going down the C-share route or a placing programme, but just putting some mechanism in place to meet that substantially increase in demand.
0: Yes, it's interesting how quickly, uh, as you said at the beginning, sentiment can turn here. These things were, as you say, they were a lot of people wanting to get out back in the second quarter of last year. And now they're going to end up bigger than they were before, I think, by the time this uh, process has finished. So that's very positive. I actually spoke to one of the managers uh, in this trust a few days ago. Very interesting about uh, how strongly they've been performing. Obviously, banks in particular are doing very well at the moment. They're regarded both as cyclical and they have value characteristics. So they've been rather much in demand admittedly after a long period in which they performed very, very poorly indeed. some Many banks having lost 90% of their value, extraordinary to relate, since the financial crisis. So that seems to be on the way back. Very good. What about UIL Limited? What have they had to say? We talked about them last week. This is all about zero-dividend preference shares. Is there anything uh, material to add here?
1: Well, just it's a postscript to our conversation last week, really. So they announced this week uh, that they'd raised 4.6 million, let's be precise, new 2028 ZDP shares, and that's raised gross proceeds of £4.6 million. So that's good for them. That's the, the £25 million that they were looking to do. So a lot of that came from uh, existing ZDP holders rolling over into this new share class. And they've been able to um, issue some new ones as well.
0: OK, so we won't explore ZDPs again this week. Uh, we might come back another time. Interesting, there they are, first specialist in this sector. Let's go on and talk about some results. And we'll start with the Martin Curry, Global Portfolio, MNP. Martin Curry Global Portfolio, they put out their annual results, this time for the year to the 31st of January. And uh, they have possibly done quite well, I think.
1: You're absolutely right. Yes, they have indeed done quite well. NAV total return up over 20%. And that compares with their benchmark index, the MSCI World Index, up about 12%. In share price terms, uh, similar to the NAV, actually up about 20.5%. And and that's a reflection of the fact that they actually pursue a zero discount policy. So invariably the share price and the NAV are broadly in line. It's an interesting portfolio, this one. It's uh, run by a chap called Zedrid Osmani at Martin Curry. It's a very concentrated portfolio, about 30 stocks, real quality growth type element to it. But um, he's differentiated, certainly from some of the other more global orientated global funds by um, having a zero weighting to uh, the FANGs stocks, the much-heralded FANGs, and he's also underweight in the US as well. Although, to be fair, he has been overweight, certainly in recent times, healthcare and technology, and clearly that has been uh, a good driver of performance in the last year. In fact, so much that a performance fee of 2.8 million was generated uh, from that period, even though actually the performance fee, I think, is going to be dropped from this financial year. So that was the last chance to
0: enjoy uh, that kind of fee. Well, it seems to have enjoyed it, uh, not inconsiderably, you might say. <laughs> Your question, of course, has always been about performance fees. You obviously have to take them into consideration along with the annual management fee. But the question is, will the fund manager at Martin Currie Global probably be doing, trying any less hard as a result of not having a performance fee to go for? That's a good question. I don't know whether what the what is the annual management fee, Simon? Do you have a record of that at the moment? How does that compare with the rest of the sector? I don't have it at my fingertips.
1: I must be honest with you, but I'm sure we could click a few buttons and find out. I mean, most of those kind of global funds, you would expect to see an ongoing charge of 1% or lower, to be perfectly honest, certainly on a, on a base fee basis. Clearly, the larger fees have the benefits of, of scale. And as we've discussed in, uh, in weeks gone by, Scottish Mortgage Investment Trust is very low, really down uh, at about 03 Or not not too far on from that. So there is a range, but I would have thought Martin Currie would probably near it to be at 1%.
0: Yes, I'm just looking down the list in the AOC stats, and uh, I think it's right to say that it's probably the last investment trust that has a performance fee in this particular sector. I don't know if you think that's right off the top of your head. It's probably not that material a point. But anyway, it is interesting that performance fees generally have been scaled back or in many cases extinguished in the last few years under pressure from shareholders. So we'll see uh, what impact that might have. Let's move on to the UK results. And we've got uh, one or two here. Let's start with one of the uh, the bigger and better known names, which is Fidelity Special Values, SFV, run by Alex Wright. And they put out some interim results. And uh, how's he doing in this uh, climate?
1: Yeah, he's had a good time, actually. So this is the six-month period to the end of February. In that time, Fidelity Special Values saw an NAV total return up 24%. And that compares with a rise of 12 percent for the FTSE all share in share price terms, even stronger, up 36 and a half percent. And really what worked for him in this period is basically strong stock selection. And that's really uh, what Alex Wright is all about, to be honest. And in particular, stocks in the consumer related sectors, life insurance and healthcare really work very well for him. Gearing was also a positive factor. And it's interesting reading the um, investment manager's commentary. I mean, Alex has said for a while, actually, that he believes that valuations are very modest at the moment. And he sees this as a considerable opportunity. And I would suggest that's uh, reflected in the level of gearing at the moment. But he pointed out that in this six-month period, five holdings in the portfolio had actually been bid for. So this idea that we are going to see uh, more and more M&A activity as we go through 2021 as a reflection of the value on offer in the UK marketplace.
0: Yes, it might be worth reminding some listeners that this uh, trust was originally managed by uh, Anthony Bolton many years ago, well, until many years ago for his retirement. And there have been another interim manager, I think, but since then. But uh, it's doing very well. And the discount has come right in, obviously, as the share price performance indicates. It was on a quite a substantial discount, uh, an, an unusual one, I think it's fair to say, in the middle of last year. And that's obviously come very good for him, both the results and the and the discount uh, movement. Let's move another one. Invesco Perpetual, we keep mentioning them. UK Smaller Companies, IPU, they've also had, uh, well, they've had annual results this time to the 31st of January. Uh, And what's their story been?
1: Yeah, that's right. So their NAV total return was actually down in that period, down 3%. And that compared with a fall of 1% for their benchmark. So a slight underperformance in NAV terms, at least. In share price terms, uh, it was a lot more difficult. So the share price total return was down 17% as the discount moved from effectively 0.1%. So a notional discount to about 15%. And actually, if you look at the chart over the last year, it's been a real roller coaster for this one. Clearly, big sell-off in March last year for obvious reasons. It did actually recover subsequently, and this has always been one of the more higher-rated uh, small-cap funds. But then, about this time last year, funnily enough, when the annual results for uh, the comparative period to the end of January twenty twenty were announced, they changed their dividend policy at that stage. And it's worth noting that this fund is one of the one of the early adopters of what we call enhanced dividends, and this is the idea where you pay. A higher dividend than perhaps you would expect, given the natural revenue generated by your holdings. But you effectively turn an element of capital uh, into income, and Invesco Virtual UK smaller companies did this uh, as a way of uh, narrowing its discount. And for a long time, it proved to be quite successful. However, this time last year, you can imagine at the time of the peak of the coronavirus, the first wave. The board decided to take a step back from that. They didn't want to pursue that. They thought that was quite a dangerous policy to pursue. And interestingly enough, in these results, they've actually reinstated that enhanced dividend policy. So they will now look to pay a dividend yield equivalent to 4% of the year-end share price. Uh, And so the total dividend for this period uh, is at 4% to 193 p. So one can only hope that that kind of stabilises, let's see, that that drives that discount in a little bit tighter. But Jonathan Brown and Robin West, the two managers of this one, uh, a very experienced pair of managers. And essentially, they've done a good job for their shareholders over a a long time.
0: Yes, I can almost imagine that the chairman will be saying that uh, it was a year of two halves, because if obviously if your financial year runs from the end of January, you announce them in April, you would, as you say, been right in the middle of the pandemic, and, uh, and they're clearly there, their timing was not perfect. But it would be disappointing to see that uh, discount move out that far, I would imagine. OK, let's talk about Acorn Income. What have we got to say about them? AIF, Acorn Income.
1: Yes, it's one of the smaller uh, investment trusts and actually quite an interesting portfolio. So it's a, it's a hybrid fund. So within Acorn Income, there are actually two portfolios, one element and the larger element is UK small caps, uh, and then there's a fixed interest securities portfolio as well, which is managed by John Lee and Robin Willis of Premier Might and Investors. The UK small cap portfolio is run by Unicorn Asset Management, two managers there, Fraser McKenzie and Simon Moon. But in their annual results to the end of 2020, they generated an NAV total return, uh, which was a negative return of 17%. Uh, and that represented an underperformance of their benchmark, which is down 4%. Uh, their share price total return was also down fourteen percent. So really, what happened here? It's this. This is quite a geared portfolio. Gearing was fifty eight percent. Admittedly, a lot of that is actually in the fixed income element. But as you can see, that was it was quite a tough time for Acorn. <laughs> I know you wish to avoid uh, ZDPs after our discussion last week, but this is uh, an investment trust that does actually have uh, a ZDP. Uh, zero dividend preference share and that is scheduled to mature in February next year February 2022.
0: So in effect the, uh, this is the reverse sort of side of the ZDP it obviously does provide gearing and uh, and a guaranteed return to those who own the ZDPs but it makes the uh, the ordinary shares rather more volatile as a result so when they go down they go down a bit further than they would otherwise do and when they go up likewise is that fair to summarize it that way?
1: Yes, I think that's right. I mean, clearly the benefit uh, is often on the income side. And as the name would suggest, Acorn Income, that's been one of the key attractions of this one. Uh, And to be fair, they did increase their their, their dividend uh, year on year. So it was 23p compared with eight p the year before. However, that was uncovered. Their revenue per share fell from 22.3p to just short of 14p. So you can see the, the impact even on the revenue side in this year.
0: Right. And just quickly, how does the market like this? I mean, how how has the ordinary shares been uh, rating at the moment?
1: Yeah. So the ordinary shares are trading on about a 14% discount or so at the moment, but their yield is 6.5%. So there's the uh, the trade-off there.
0: Okay. Let's move on overseas and let's talk about Asia Dragon. That is uh, DGN, Asia Dragon. They've had some interim results for the six months to the end of February. They operate in the, I dare say, in the Asia-Pacific non-Japan sector. Am I right about that? Yep,
1: yeah, absolutely spot on. And uh, again, a decent set of results for this particular investment trust. NAV total return up 24% uh, compared with 18% for their benchmark index, the MSCI country. Asia-Pacific ex-Japan index in share price terms, uh, even stronger. Actually, the share price total return is up 27%. So as one expects, a number of key stocks performed well for them, including Samsung Electronics and Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing Company. And they also benefited from consumption recovery through a number of names as well. Uh, this is a part of the Aberdeen Standard Investments stable. Uh, Adrian Liman, Brooksag, I am Fong Fong. I hope I got that name right. responsible for this one. And it's interesting, actually, that they used that bit of moment of share price weakness to add to some interesting names in the portfolio, including Alibaba, which historically has not been a name that you'd find in one of their portfolios. But they've also added to some green energy technology names as well. And they were 9% geared at the end of February.
0: So let's move on then and talk and possibly compare, but they do slightly different things. Uh, This particular trust with Henderson Far East Income, H-F-E-L, Henderson Far East Income, Obviously, that's out of the Janus Henderson stable. And they've had interim results for the same period, the six months to the 28th of February 2021. But uh, tell us more about that.
1: Yeah, they've had a more difficult time of it. Uh, So their NAV total return was up 7.4%, but that compares with a 17.5% for their benchmark, which is the FTSE World Asia Pacific X Japan Index. So they struggled a little bit, but that's a reflection really of their equity income mandate obviously they're looking for those companies that have attractive dividend levels share price terms they were up uh, just short of 7% as their premium just contracted a little bit but it's still they still were managed to uh, issue shares in that period they raised additional capital of 9 million pounds uh, and it's worth noting that they're still uh, increasing their dividends so the interim dividend of 5.8p was up uh, just short of 2% from the corresponding period but if you look at the, the yield on that particular uh, investment trust on a historic basis, it stands at 6.9% at the moment. So you could see why it would trade on a premium. It's probably on about a 3 4% premium at the moment. And that has been a consistent pattern over the last 12 months.
0: Right. But whereas in the previous case we said that you know high yield, there was a bit of a trade-off, here it just seems to be uh, more popular. And Asia Dragon, that trades at a discount, I imagine. But uh, is that right? It's a different kind of trust? That's correct, yes. Yeah. So
1: we've got on about a 9% discount or so at the moment. And that's slightly narrower than we've seen over the last 12
0: months. It's probably averaged an 11% discount over the last 12 months. Okay, so the last one was in the Asia equity income sector. Let's move on and talk about some specialist results. We've heard from Aquila European Renewals Income, AERS, your results to the end of December last year. Annual results, NAV
1: return a modest 0.7%, but in positive territory, did a little bit better in share price terms. That was up 2% uh, as their premium just increased a bit. But this is a relatively new arrival to this sector. I say new. It was back in June 2019 uh, when they raised uh, £137 million. Pounds. And yield is obviously a key part of this particular story. So, they declared – dividends of 4p per share in this particular period, uh, and that was in line with the guidance they gave uh, at launch in their prospectus. Possibly more importantly, is that dividend was actually covered 1.1 times, uh, and they're continuing to build the portfolio out. So at the end of 2020, it comprised 31 assets uh, and basically in the solar and wind
0: space, as you would expect, given their name. Okay, and we'll talk about GCP infrastructure. GCP, what have they had to say? Yeah, they provided an
1: update for the, the first quarter of this year, i.e. the three months to the end of March. The NAV uh, was down just short of 2p in that time uh, to 100 spot 8p. And uh, one of the factors here, and, and this is uh, I think why it's worth just highlighting this one, is the, the change in the UK corporation tax rate. So we, I think we talked about this back in March uh, at the time of the budget and how corporation tax will change in the years to come and that will factor in on some of these infrastructure and renewable infrastructure names because of the way that their navs are calculated in this case it was a 1.7 p negative hit uh, and there was also some commentary about uh, electricity prices as well and that this has been another focus of the renewable energy infrastructure funds and infrastructure in general Um, There is, to a greater or lesser extent, exposure to energy prices. And so with long-term energy price forecasts uh, in decline in in a number of instances, that again does have an impact on on the NAV. And they provided some commentary around that as well.
0: Just quickly, where do they stand in the uh, infrastructure sector in terms of size and in terms of rating?
1: Yeah, so GCP infrastructure, it's worth noting that it's focused on infrastructure debt which is not the case for many of its peers. But in terms of size, uh, it's a pretty decent size. It's got a market cap of just short of £920 million. It offers a yield, certainly on a historic basis, of about 7% or so at the moment.
0: A lot of 6 to 7% yields out there we're hearing about. An interesting phenomenon. Let's talk about private equity. There have been some significant uh, announcements by some of the big private equity trusts this week. And the sector generally has been performing quite well, as we'll talk about that in a minute, maybe. But let's quickly look through some of these. We've got Harbourvest Global Private Equity, HVPE. Harbourvest, what have they had to say?
1: Yeah, they announced their NAV at the end of March. And why is that noteworthy? It's because they've actually now, for the first time, included valuations as at the end of 2020. So there's always a little bit of a lag on private equity valuations. So even though many of them do give these monthly NAVs, quite often the underlying valuations can be for a number of months earlier. So this finally reflects those year-end or 2020 year-end valuations. And the NAV was up 9% from the end of February as a result. So clearly, that was a a positive number.
0: Okay, so before we just talk about the others, you might just expand on that a little bit further. So how do you as an analyst approach the issue of looking at private equity funds when they're producing these NAVs, you know, with a time lag, quite a significant time lag, and presumably at certain points in time, there are private equity trusts out there some of which have produced their latest NAVs, some of which have not. And so, therefore, you presumably have to be quite careful when you're comparing one with another. Is that right? No, that's
1: absolutely right. So, it's very important to understand the nature of the portfolio, the underlying portfolio. So, what you can find is that despite the private equity funds, by definition, largely exposed to private companies, there will be an element of public companies in there as well, particularly when they've uh, enjoyed some IPOs, some of their underlying holdings of, of IPOs. So you are getting up-to-date share price movements reflected in those NAVs as well. So you do need to be familiar with the underlying portfolio. And, and you're right, because of that time lag, It's sometimes you're not comparing apples with apples. So it's just one of the things you look at. You've clearly got to factor in uh, foreign exchange currency movements as well, because that can be quite a big determinant. And there's always a little bit of a guesswork in terms of where their genuine NAVs are. If anything, though, I think as a rule of thumb, our experience is that valuations tend to be conservative across the list of private equity space. And the evidence uh, for that is that as and when they come to realise these private companies, you, you invariably see quite good uplifts. In fact, sometimes very impressive uplifts as a result. And I think that gives you some comfort that valuations, as I said, are in the main on the conservative side.
0: Well, let's talk about another one, uh, NB private equity, NBPE. They've had their annual results, uh, the same sort of thing, I guess. And what have they had to say?
1: Yep, these were uh, annual results to the end of 2020 and uh, a pretty strong period, actually. NAV total return was up 21%. And again, to my point, that was assisted by uplifts on realisations in in the period. They made the point it's a diversified portfolio, but it was their investments in the financial services, healthcare and TMT sectors that saw the strongest underlying um, growth in, in terms of profits. Realizations were actually quite strong in the period as well, just short of 200 million US dollars. And again, I think this is a point that we've talked about, that despite everything that went on last year, we still saw quite decent levels of investment activity across many of these private equity funds, particularly as the year went on. And that seems to be the case for MB Private Equity. In addition to that, they revealed that they've got seven full or partial exits in process at the moment. So this is so far in 2021. And they made it clear that that would be beneficial to their NAV, that they would undoubtedly see an uplift to their NAV as a result of those exit processes. And in fact, just after their annual results, they gave an updated NAV. And again, that was up, again, an additional 7% from their valuation at the end of December. And that partially included some of the, the uplifts from these uh, disposals that they're making at the moment.
0: And then we have also heard from Standard Live Private Equity, that's SLPE, Standard Life Private Equity, they put out an NAV, but uh, not at the 31st of March, I think, or have they?
1: No, you're, you're, you're right. They have their quarterly NAV update to the end of uh, December, so 2020. Um, and it's worth noting with Standard Life Private Equity that their reporting period, so they report to the end of September and then to the end of March. So this is the, the, the quarter in between, so not unimportant. Uh, and again, their NAV in that quarter was up just short of 10%. So again, pretty strong. In NAV total return terms, it was up 10.5%. So that was positive. And again, uh, lots of investment activity and sitting with the balance sheet quite strong. So they've got cash equivalents of just short of 67 million. And that was updated to mid-April. They have got commitments, as is the way of these fund of funds. They tend to make what they call primary commitments, which get drawn down over a period of time. But they're sitting with an undrawn credit facility, plus they've got cash on their balance sheet. So they look well placed in order to meet those commitments.
0: I noticed that they put out an estimated NAV per share at the 31st of March. Is that common practice as well? Is there usually much material difference between the estimated NAVs and the ones that are finally uh, appear in the results and so on. I presume they're, in some cases they're audited. How does that process work?
1: Yeah, so in the case of Standard Life Private Equity, that NAV will be audited because that's one of their reporting periods, 31st of March. So you'll see, I can't remember the top of my head who their auditors are, but I'm sure they'll be crawling all over that figure. But I mean, in terms of do we ever see any material changes, in my experience, broadly speaking, no, not really. Every now and again, something might kind of creep through. But The way that the valuations are kind of built up, it's a pretty robust process. Unless there was something material crept out of the woodwork, you'd expect that to be a pretty decent guide for what the number eventually is.
0: So just to finish on the private equity trust then, I mean, they, as I said, they have been performing quite well, I think. We can talk about that in a second. You can fill us in some detail that, that they all trade at a discount to the published NAVs anyway. But just to sort of make the point, I guess, that depending on what kind of private equity fund you are, of course, but at any one time you have some investments which are being realised, you have other investments, new investments which you're, which you're making, and then you have some commitments in the future to, to invest at a certain point or if called upon. Uh, so, how do you go about sort of balancing that when you're actually reviewing uh, a private equity trust with a view to saying whether it's a bargain or it's uh, too expensive? What's the, what's the process there?
1: Yeah, no, it's a really good point because there are and there have been opportunities in the private equity space that might be relatively short-term in nature. You can look at the nature of the portfolio and you think, well, you could see a couple of these being realised in quite short term, and they might go out at a decent uplift and all the rest of it. Whereas some people might say, I'm less interested in the NAV uplift in on a six-monthly view, I want something that's actually going to work quite nicely over ten years. And that's a different kind of question. So some people will look at trading opportunities, which is the kind of the first thing I described, or people look at those that have a kind of proven ability to effectively run private equity portfolios and take a longer term view on it. So you know, without wishing to give investment recommendations, that's the kind of process that we'll go through. And I suspect most analysts will when they look at this sector. You know, to your point, it has been a very strong long-term sector over the last 10 years. Clearly, going back in time to the financial crisis, it got hit very hard. But I think for every calendar year subsequent to that, uh, they've outperformed the UK market. I'm fairly sure that's the data off the top of my head. Uh, And yet, uh, as noted, a number still trade on quite wide
0: discounts. So, given all you've said, Simon, how is the market regarding private equity trusts at the moment in terms of, you know, have the share prices been moving up? Have the discounts been moving at all? Is there any way we can generalise about that, say, over the last, uh, last month or year to date or last six months or any such period?
1: Yeah. So, it depends is the answer. So, there are some private equity funds that have had a quieter year so far to date, but others have actually performed quite strongly. So, I've got the three month, uh, which is a very short period, obviously, three month share price performance figures in front of me. Uh, And something like a BMO private equity has done very well over that period, up uh, 28%. Standard Life private equity is up uh, 20%. ICG enterprise up 16%. uh, And they've got results coming out quite soon. So in that fund of funds bracket, uh, a number of those names have performed strongly. Though it's worth noting they started the year at quite wide discount levels. So it seems that people are, are sensing uh, rightly or wrongly, but they're sensing a value opportunity there. Those names that are probably more higher rated, uh, and HD Capital would be a, a good case in point. It's got an incredibly strong long-term track record. But so far this year, it's probably having a bit of a quieter period, clearly in, in technology. Uh, and we know technology has been a bit of a roller coaster. But certainly over the last three months, which, again, I stress is a very, very short period, but they're just up uh, 2% or so in share price terms.
0: Okay. So we might quickly now just talk about a couple of more uh, hedge funds. They have had some results as well. We've talked a little bit about hedge funds in the last few weeks because of uh, various uh, activities surrounding some of the bigger names like Pershing Square Holdings and Third Point Investors. Uh, Let's start with them. TPOU, Third Point Investors. This is run by a gentleman called Daniel Loeb and Uh, They trade on a discount, which they're trying to rectify. We said that a couple of weeks ago, but they've had some results out. And uh, what have they said? Yeah, so they had a good year last year.
1: Uh, NAV total return of just short of 24% in 2020. uh, And that compares with the MSCI World Index, which was up 16.5% last year. So a good set of results Um, and interesting commentary around that. They increased their net long position from 65% to 90%. And on the equity side of their book, they had quite positive contributions from, from their more activist positions uh, and what they describe as fundamental and event-driven positions. So this is all kind of hedge fund terminology, uh, though their hedges were, were negative last year. Uh, on the credit side as well, there were some significant positive contributions. But all in all, it's been a good year for third point. But as you note, it's still on a relatively wide discount, probably about 16 17% or so at the moment Uh, And they did note that, and as you rightly say, they're looking to address that. There there are a number of conditional tender offers uh, in place, and they're basically looking to target a 7.5% discount over time. And also looking to make some uh, investments in private companies. I think they're looking to invest up to 20% of their portfolio in private companies. So they're looking to move this one on.
0: And have they had any success so far? It's early days, I suppose, since they said they were trying to make a difference. Has Has the discount moved much? No, is the short answer. I think you're right. I think it's early days,
1: to be fair to them. I'm, I've got them on about a 16% discount at the moment. So, I, I mean, to be fair, over the last 12 months, they've averaged a 21% discount. So it has narrowed in, but uh, still not quite to the 7.5% level that they're targeting.
0: Okay, so one of the issues about hedge funds, we talked about the difficulty of comparing uh, private equity funds. Uh, but uh, hedge funds, I mean, the difference is that many of them are doing different things. Third point is slightly unusual, that it does a wide range of uh, hedge fund uh, strategies. But uh, it's quite difficult to compare them across the whole sector because they do such different things. So, for example, we have a trust called Highbridge Tactical Credit Fund, HTCF, which (laughs) I suggest is doing something quite different from third point investors except in the credit area. How have they been performing?
1: Well, they had their annual results again to the end of last year, uh, an NAV return of just short of 18%. In share price terms, they did even better, about 28%. But it's worth noting that this fund is effectively managed to wind down. Their market cap today probably stands about £45 million or so. But it's worth noting, and there have been a number of hedge funds disappear in the investment company sector over the years, they can take a bit of time to wind down. You have to make redemption requests, and sometimes you... You end up in what's called side pockets, which invariably takes some time uh, to generate sufficient liquidity to be repaid. But at the moment, uh, they're kind of getting on with uh, life. They're they're returning capital to shareholders periodically. um, But there's obviously a little bit of uncertainty over the timings of the final amounts due from various elements within the portfolio.
0: Right. So they're not actually doing any investing at all at the moment. They're just winding out of the positions they're already in. And did quite well with it, though, last year despite being in wind down. OK, let's talk about another hedge fund. This is Boussard and Gavodon. I believe that's how you pronounce it, but you'll correct me, Simon, since I think you're a broker to this trust, are you not? They've had some annual results. And <laughs> what do they do? And how have they done in the last year?
1: Well, I'm going to accept your uh, pronunciation. My GCSE French is not quite good enough to correct you. But um, no, they had a good year last year, really. Their euro NAV total return was up 13% in sterling terms. Not quite as good, but up 10%. And again, uh, you know, in the commentary, they talk about how the investment performance uh, was assisted by market volatility. And that's quite a common theme across all the hedge fund space. Actually, clearly last year was, (laughs) as discussed, a complete roller coaster for any number of of asset classes and markets. And and hedge funds invariably are quite adept at taking advantage of that. That's certainly the case in this instance, Uh, and they talk about the arbitrage opportunities and some of the high conviction positions as well that uh, created value for them. Funnily enough as well, they noted that share buybacks were also a significant uh, contributor to performance, and the board intends to continue to keep buying back those shares while the discount exceeds 15%, uh, and currently they're on about 19%. So one would imagine that their broker is going to be busy for some time.
0: Well, I'm very happy to hear that. Let's move on then, uh, finally, to the property sector. Now, we had a lot of NAV announcements in this sector. Counting up, I can see eight, I think. So we probably won't go to them all because uh, that would uh, take up a lot of time and a lot of kind of detailed stuff. But uh, first of all, why don't you just give us a general picture of what's been happening in the property sector, if you, if you would, uh, Simon, in terms of NAV movements? Obviously, it depends what kind of activity you're in. Uh, and then we might just pick out a couple out of these. we might na- I'll name them all, and then we can pick out a couple. So we've heard from AEW UK REIT, A-E-W-U. BMO Commercial Property Trust, uh, BCPT. Drum Income Plus REIT, DRIP. Uh, Edison Property Investment Company, ticker is EPIC. Uh, LXI REIT, we mentioned them a number of times recently, LXI. Regional REIT, R-L-G-L. Schroeder Real Estate Investment Trust, S-R-E-I. And UK commercial property, UKCM, they've all had something to say. Why don't you give us a general picture, Simon, and then we might pick out a couple, as I say.
1: Yeah, you're right. These are basically updates for the first quarter of this year, so that three-month period to the end of March. The general picture is that valuations are uh, kind of moving in the right direction, not massively so, but we're seeing 1% or 2% increases in NAVs where they have been disclosed. Possibly of more interest is where these respective property companies are in terms of their rent collection. Um, Again, that will depend hugely in terms of where they're invested. And the general pattern seems to be, it's relatively positive, kind of numbers around, seem to be around about 90% in general. But again, it's very, very dependent. So just to pick on one, Schroeder Real Estate Investment Trust, which has a a range uh, of different sectors in its portfolio, Its information in terms of rent collection, you know, it's 98% has been collected from its industrial property, 96% from office, and yet when you look at retail and leisure, it's 51%. And I think that would be a similar pattern across the whole uh, sector, to be honest. Clearly, retail and leisure, for very, very obvious reasons, quite difficult. But then there are some positive signs as well. So some of them have come out and given some commentary. Uh, about how they see, you know, the office sector goes. So regional REITs would be a good case. And that is focused on uh, offices in the regions, as its name would suggest. And the the commentary around that was that they're very positive in terms of the levels of activity across the portfolio, particularly uh, with regard to letting inquiries. So they believe that as restrictions continue to ease, um, occupiers are going to come back and return to physical occupation, uh, as they put it. But basically, more people coming back to offices and there eventually there's a knock-on positive effect in terms of rental income.
0: Okay so let's just pick out a couple I I mean two of the bigger ones perhaps which are probably better known to people one is um, BMO Commercial Property Trust which has trading on a very big discount still what have they had to say just uh, just without going into too much detail what's the story there have they been doing better or worse than the general trend you've mentioned?
1: Yeah I think they probably are in line with that general trend actually so if you look at their NAV total return in that first three-month period. Uh, It's in positive territory. It's up 2.6%. And yet share price total return was down 10%. So there is a disconnect here. I mean, in terms of the valuations, you know, things are broadly going in the right direction. And in terms of that rent collection, I mean, they gave a stat that the combined rent collection received over the 12-month period from the second quarter of 2020 to the first quarter of this was about 88%. So this just re-emphasizes the point I made earlier in terms of how people are getting on. But clearly a lot of work being done by the investment teams involved in this property sector, managing uh, that kind of rent collection role and working with their tenants in terms of how to uh, play their way through this. I think most people have made noises that they are prepared to be very constructive in their engagement with their tenants. They recognize that this has clearly been a very, very difficult time uh, and it's trying to find a solution to that.
0: Okay, and let's mention also UK commercial property, uh, UKCM, their annual results as well. What's the story there?
1: Yeah, so these were annual results to the end of December, so the end of 2020, effectively. Uh, And obviously, as discussed before, a difficult period for property. Their NAV was down, their NAV total return was down, albeit just modestly down about 1% or so, but in share price total return terms down about 20% as their discount widened from 1% to 20%. So it's that d rating that we've seen. In terms of occupancy rate, still very strong, um, actually increased in the period from 92% to 93%, 93.5%. And again, their rent collection uh, last year was 83%, and that was down from 97% in 2019. But this has always been one of the more modestly geared property plays. It's one of the longest standing, the best established property plays and their net gearing at the end of December was about 6% or so. But it's worth just ending on uh, where they are in terms of their dividend. Um, so their dividend was down 36% on 2019. But actually their earnings, which were also down, were higher than their dividend. So they had EPRA earnings of 2.71p and their total dividend was 2.371p. So in other words, their dividend was actually covered during the year.
0: Very good. And then let's finally just talk about the sector overall. We've mentioned there are eight trusts uh, saying something this week, but the range of discounts in the sector still remains very wide. Is that mainly still reflecting the difference in the kind of property they're investing in? Obviously, the the right sectors are doing better than the wrong sectors, and the generalised commercial property trusts are are not doing quite so well. And is there any evidence of of demand for shares in these trusts uh, increasing?
1: You make a good point. I mean, there clearly is demand for property, but people seem very, very focused. So you you take a name like LXI REIT, which is very focused on long let and index linked UK property, and it's performed well. And that's trading on a 10% premium. But then as mentioned, BMO commercial property uh, on a discount wider than 30%. and, And that hasn't really moved. UK commercial property, that discount has come in a little bit, actually. On a 12% discount. So it is a very, very mixed picture across the, the commercial property space. I mean, a few of the, um, the names in the sector have said that they will look to um, buy back some of their shares, particularly where they get to a, a wide level. Uh, they're prepared to do that. But there does seem to be a little bit of an overhang. In other words, an excess of supply for these some of these more general property names than there is demand at the moment.
0: And does it really make much sense to look at the yields that are notionally on offer on these trusts. I mean, how do you go about doing that? Obviously, you can look at the historic yield over the last 12 months of what was actually paid. Uh, But does that actually tell you anything worthwhile, particularly? It doesn't tell you what you're going to get in the current year. If you you bought the shares today, it doesn't tell you what you would get over the next 12 months. But in general terms, I mean, the, the property companies, I think, are making noises that the worst is past in terms of dividend cuts and so on. Is that your impression?
1: Yeah, I think so. And, and the pattern that we've seen over the last four or five months, if not possibly a bit longer now, actually, is to, to see not just dividends reinstated, but actually dividends grown. And actually, a few of the property investment trusts had to pay an additional dividend. So as not to fall foul of the REIT rules, you have to return a certain amount of your revenue every year. and And so some of them actually had to pay an extra dividend to make sure they adhered to that. So look, I mean, clearly UK commercial property is very sensitive to the UK economy. I think we can all take that as, as given. And so I think most people have a view on how things are likely to progress over the next few years and what we're likely to see. And in particular, you, know, you can look at uh, logistics and you think, well, there, there's probably a, a very strong following wind there. But areas such as retail, still massive question marks of how retail plays out. And this is not necessarily a coronavirus story. Um, You look at offices, which have clearly been very impacted by the events over the last 12 months. Are people going to run back to their offices? Are we going to see demand for new office space? Or actually, are we going to see a change in in culture? So there's some big, big questions facing the property sector, and people will have different views on it. So where we have seen demand, it's been for those more specialist property classes. But the generalists, I think, are just floundering a little bit and and probably, as I say, suffering from uh, an excess of supply versus demand.
0: And it might finally be worth mentioning the fact that in the last few days, we've heard that uh, M&G are reopening their open-ended property uh, fund after, I think, 17 months where it's been uh, gated or effectively closed down. You couldn't get your money back. So you would expect in those circumstances, it's often said that investment trust, you know, offers a different way to invest in property. And some people think it's superior because at least you could always sell your shares if you want to, albeit at a, at a big discount in many cases. So we haven't yet seen a lot of demand for people coming out of open-ended funds into uh, investment trusts in the property sector, or have we in terms of flows and, uh, and movements in share prices?
1: Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, to your point about the suitability of the, of the structure, my personal view is it's absolutely fundamental. If you have an open-ended fund, it shouldn't be used to access illiquid asset classes. And, and property is clearly an illiquid asset classes. And we can all think of some uh, quite well-known instances where open-ended funds, are, I, I believe, have been used incorrectly and have fallen foul of that, where people want to get their money back and that there is uh, problems thereafter. Um, so I think the listed closed-end fund structure is a better vehicle to access property. It allows these funds to to provide geared exposure, fully exposed. And I think in the case of that uh, M and G fund, I may be wrong with this, but I think quite a large element is going to be in cash initially, with the intention being that that will meet any uh, redemptions when it when it does reopen. Now clearly, uh, that you know that has implications for ongoing investors in that vehicle, and that's you don't have those kind of problems with listed closed ended funds, though as you rightly say, then you might have to be comfortable with, with the discount. I still think property is an asset class. Again, this is a personal view. I still think it's a, uh, you know, a very attractive asset class on a long-term view. But as noted, there are these big fundamental structural issues facing the sector. And I think some of the discounts, not all, but some of the discounts uh, are reflective of those structural issues.
0: Yes, I think the figure of the energy being mentioned in the context of energy was 30% in cash, which is a significant cash drag on any performance you might get out of the underlying in in assets in the fund, as long as that uh, is sustained. Okay, so on that note, I think that brings us to the end this week. Uh, Simon, thank you very much for your time and comments. And uh, as always, even if the sunshine continues, we'll hope that the things look up in the markets uh, next week as well as they have done so far this year. So thanks again for your time.
1: This has been a Moneymakers Investment Trust Podcast. These podcasts are independently produced and edited and are available on all leading podcast channels. You can sign up on the Moneymakers website, www.moneymakers.co to be notified every time a new podcast is available. The website also has details of how to join the Moneymakers Circle, our premium content subscription service, offering more interviews, portfolio updates, and market commentary. Thank you for listening and please keep safe in these difficult times.